you are listening to Demise of the Podcast with Patrick Attaway, my podcast where I discuss writing, specifically today, the writing on the TV show Two and a Half Men. We're getting into part three of this. I promise I'm going to go over it today. I'm going to engage with the material as best as I can. And if this is your first time listening to the podcast, this is a terrible episode to start on. So I suggest you go back to the Toxic Masculinity Primer if you're interested in my Two and a Half Men series on the podcast and go from there because we're actually covering my master's thesis on the series which scopes season one through season eight through the lens of toxic masculinity. So, stop listening if this is your first. I will not allow you to listen. Stop. Okay. Now that everyone who is a normal, valuable listener and contributor to the podcast, which I guess would just be me, I have a lot of cool listeners on this podcast. I'm very fortunate to have you guys listen. Uh, unfortunately, I'm going to be talking about things that have nothing to do with Two and a Half Men right from the get-go. So, yesterday on July 1st, my fourth novel, Birch, came out. And I already knew from the pre-orders that it wasn't going to sell a lot. And uh, I expected disappointment, and I achieved that. Now... I said from the get-go when I published this book back in, I think I submitted it back in April, that I really felt like just putting it out there. Uh, I considered putting it out there without a cover, too. I mean, I was just over it because I'm over-marketing my stuff. I'm over-trying to make my writing seem appealing to readers, I'm just over that. I don't like doing it. And the more that I do it, it seems like the less good I am at it. I'm worse at it than I was before. Now, granted, this year, I've had, I think I've had more sales than any other year, but just not for that book. (laughs) And I did a a free giveaway uh, back in May. Or was it June? It wasn't that long ago. To kind of help promote this. And over 200 people downloaded the shit. Okay? So that was cool. However, the thing is, is that none of them came back to get Birch. Granted, it's only 3 bucks on Kindle. And the paperback is $8.99. So... If you'd really love to please me, get a copy and read it, okay? Now, I'm going to read a page from it on the podcast here in a second. I said I wasn't going to cover it on the podcast, and I'm not technically, but I am going to read uh, the first page. I shared it on Instagram. I only have nine followers. I only follow nine people. I don't want to change that. I actually think about deleting my Instagram quite often. I deleted my first Instagram account last year. And just came back because, quite honestly, navigating from TikTok to people's Instagrams to look at pretty pictures got annoying because every time you do it in Safari, uh, it wants you to download the app. 
Now, I think that mobile web is stupid because every website wants you to download their app. So, fuck you. Anyway, Birch is not a sequel. Birch is another book in a quote-unquote series. Does it relate to the other books? Yes. Is it a brand new narrative? Yes. It has. You can read it without having read the previous books, and I, I have a lot of references to the previous books for newer readers and returning readers. But on the other hand, I do want you to read the other books. <laughs> And I've been thinking, maybe I need to promote Demise of the Trinity more. It came out in 2020. It's my best-selling book. But, you know, I, I need to convince the people who haven't read it yet to read it and the people who have read it to read the other fucking books. Not an easy task all the time. And I don't care about the money. I never have. Otherwise, I wouldn't give a free free books away. I have actually purchased paperback copies of the books to sign and send to people who requested it. And I haven't asked anything in return, not even for postage. That's just who I am. I've bought copies of it to put around town in the free libraries. Haven't gotten any reviews from that, but every time I go look in the, the libraries, my books are gone. Now, it could be, be very well that someone is taking them out of there and throwing them away because they think that they're in poor taste or something. Sometimes I think about using one of my credit cards and buying a shit ton of copies of one of my books to put in town and Atlanta and surrounding areas. Uh, I, I won't do that anytime soon because of gas prices and the fact that I work a fucking job. I have a day job and I have a master's degree in English, which is turning out to amount to shit right now. But beyond that, why don't we just read a little bit from Birch? I'll talk about it a little bit, and then we'll get into Two and a Half Men. Does that work for you? I don't want to spend the whole episode ranting. I'm not in a bad mood. Most of the time when I'm doing this podcast, I'm not in a bad mood. Most of the time when I'm acting like I'm pissy, I'm not actually pissy. It's very rare that I'm pissy on here. I'm going to take a sip of Coke. It's kind of flat. You know, what I don't like about putting new cans in the fridge is that it takes them a while to cool down. And when you take them out, even if you pour them over ice, it's kind of flat. And I don't like that. Anyway... So, if you don't know about Birch the character, he's introduced in Demise of the Trinity. He's not in Price of the Trinity. He is in Surviving New America. He's in my most popular short story, which is entitled Mount Venom. But, he's sprinkled, he's sprinkled throughout the narrative of this quote-unquote series. I, I keep saying quote-unquote because I don't consider it a series. I just label it that for marketing purposes, which is kind of a double-edged sword because people think that they need to read the other books in order to read your new book, and it sucks. So, I've been alive for 147 years. When I was still a teenage boy, I attempted suicide multiple ways. Trigger warning. A bullet wouldn't penetrate my temple. Pills didn't cause liver failure. A rope couldn't break my neck, and even jumping from a bridge only got me wet. Not long after, I learned what I am. God. 
made me this way. The Trinity feels like an outdated label now, but back then it almost made sense. One of us dies, a new one is born, and the cycle went on for centuries until I showed up. Why did God choose me to take on the title as the figurehead and help in the Trinity? The other two were here with me for a while. Nero and Rosa, the toxic twins. One never satisfied with the other. When they ran off to Atlanta together, I figured I'd have my peace. All I know is Rosa never wanted anything to do with me, and finding anyone who'd spend more than an evening with me is more difficult than making gold out of a pig shit. Despite that I crave solitude, I never wanted isolation to the point I could hear colors throughout the immense silence. My body is stuck at age 22, and all because I had to take on the devil. Power doesn't corrupt man. Those who wield power merely let their inhibitions down. Fear keeps me from delving into deep into what I stole from Lucifer. But tonight, on this coastline, my soul's sinking to my ankles. I don't think I can lose anything I cannot retain. I turned out all the lights in the house, and the clouds obscure the moon. The flame growing in my hands illuminates the sand and water. If I project all of my power, I might expel this youth and succumb to God's will. He kept me alive and bulletproof too long. Heat boils the tide and grains pop like fireworks. One blue, once blue engulfs me. I see a brightness akin to when I first entered hell, followed by complete darkness. All sound, smell, and feeling ceases. It's not even a numb sensation. I feel nothing because... There is nothing. So, that is part of the first page. But we've gotten 10 minutes in the podcast, and I'm tired talking about my stuff. In fact, what's funny is I was looking at past episodes, and I haven't actually covered much of my stuff, my own work in the past year. Uh, I, I haven't really given. Surviving New America, my third novel, uh, much coverage on the podcast. I did a uh, recently. I did a Price of the Trinity episode because I wanted to cover it more. But I don't know when and if I'm going to get back into my own material on the podcast, and I don't know about covering Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil after I do Two and a Half Men, and I don't know how the Two and a Half Men series is going to go on, but we're just going to get into an episode of Two and a Half Men called Enjoy Those Garlic Balls, which is written by Don Foster. And it is an unraveling of the Harper brothers' relationship with their mother, Evelyn. So let me start reading. Charlie specifically reveals the reasoning behind his hatred toward her and the extent of the trauma that shapes his persona. Foster also examines Alan's decline after his divorce. Alan sits at the kitchen table with a bottle of tequila, toy giraffe, and checkbook. 
After writing in this checkbook, he takes a shot. Charlie enters and says, Must be alimony time. You'd think for all that money she'd at least come over and give you a lap dance. In season two, Alan stops hoping Judith and he might reconcile, so Foster depicts him as bitterly conceding to supporting his ex-wife and son. The tequila and giraffe provide a phallic juxtaposition. The glass bottle stands firm and tall compared to the tiny giraffe standing on four skinny legs. As Alan takes shots, he sips from the same macho stream Charlie relies on, yet when he explains the giraffe, the doses of manhood only amount to delusion. Alan explains, It's symbolic. I made it in ceramics class for Judith when we were dating. When Judith kicked me out, I wanted to get back at her. I mean, she took the house, she took the car, she took the money. I felt I had to take something. The giraffe represents Alan's masculinity and ego. When he made the trinket in high school, Judith probably accepted the cute gift and put it on a shelf only to forget about the gesture. Alan remembers because a man making a woman a ceramic animal displays sensitivity he normally guards. As the wife... In the divorce, Judith takes away everything Alan works to provide his family, and he leaves with a delicate animal as his former life dies. When Alan says he wants to give the giraffe back to Judith and apologize as a grand gesture, Charlie tells him, You need to move on, buddy. Alan throws Charlie the car keys, considering he is now drunk, in the middle of the day. In season one, Alan drinks with Charlie on infrequent on an infrequent casual basis. Drinking during daylight not only highlights Alan coming to terms with the divorce, but his change from the man he was in the first episode. Considering his failure as a husband and father, Alan tries emulating Charlie as a coping mechanism. Since Alan's need for perfectionism ended his marriage, he blames Judith rather than himself. That little part about... Alan displaying sensitivity by making a ceramic animal. It reminded me of something I wanted to talk about in regards to toxic masculinity. Now, a couple episodes ago, I gave you the story about how my mother got mad when I wore eyeliner a couple of times. I'm going to take a sip of Coke. Now, most of the time, my mother was actually very open-minded with me, and she is overall a very good parent. Now, my father who I've spoken about several times on this podcast. If you're listening, hi, Dad. But he and my grandfather are the the contributors to most of the masculine portion of the influence on me in terms of toxic masculinity. And I just thought of just, you know, brief examples, things that were relatively harmless compared to the overall big picture, especially with my father. Now... One of the things that happened early on in my relationship with him that I remember, and it it stung me then, and remembering how it stung me, it stings me now. So, you know how children kiss their parents. I've seen some children straight up kiss their parents on the lips. Some people might think that's weird. With my parents, I always just kiss them on the cheek. They kiss me on the cheek, and so on and so forth. Now, what's ironic about this story, it's not really a story, it's an anecdote. My father, years ago, before he got diagnosed with a severe illness, 
he picked me up when I was in my 20s and kissed me on the face. But when I was a kid, he felt the need to exert some sort of masculine dominance in my life, so I learned from it. Where did he learn this from? He learned it from my grandfather. So my grandfather was very rough with me. Um, he used to quote-unquote tease me by calling me Patricia all the time, which uh, I didn't like. I still don't like it. But it got to a point where when I got older and I thought he was going to hurt me, I just would hold up my hands and say, I'm Patricia. So that was interesting. He would do things like bend my arm up around and he was just generally rough with me. But with my stepsisters, um, he would be very gentle. He would pick them up and kiss them all over on the face. He'd let them sit in his lap. He... I, I must have complained about it at some point because at some point he explained that's how you're supposed to be with girls. With boys, you're supposed to be rough so you grow up to be men. When I was about... It was, it was, this was after my parents' divorce. My father used to take me to uh, the flea market on Sundays before he would take me home because he was selling Beanie Babies as a side hustle because... Uh, most of his money seemed to be when it wasn't going to his family or, you know, my measly child support. Uh, it was going to his wife's debt that she um, accumulated prior to their marriage that he didn't know about. So he was pulling double shifts and burning himself all the time and generally becoming much more bitter than he was when he was married to my mother. And in doing so... Uh, we were in his car, and he had something that looked like a white pacer, I remember. But um, he used to kiss me on the face. And I was, I mean, I'm a little, I was a little boy. My niece is six years old, and I still consider her a baby. I was like five or six when this happened, and I kissed him on the face, like on the cheek. And he said, why'd you do that? You kissing me? Are you a sissy boy? Are you a sissy? Don't do that anymore. This was not a boundary that he'd set before with me. And it hurt me quite a bit. And the explanation was, that's what you're supposed to do when you're a boy. So, when we, we, we take this back to Alan, Alan is actually much like Charlie, is missing that father in their life because Frank Harper died when they were both children. But instead of being rebuked by their father like I was, they, they have nothing from their father. And they, they're missing affection from their mother. So, yeah, there's no wonder they got fucked up. Ellen knows Judith perceives him as mentally unwell, but his illusion about her ever appreciating the giraffe tells him that more of his assumptions about their relationship are potentially false. Dr. Herb Melnick, portrayed by Ryan Stiles, opens Judith's door in a short white robe when a drunk Alan knocks, which prompts Alan to ask about Jake, who is at a friend's house. 
Charlie pipes in. Looks like somebody else is giving your wife the giraffe. Herb stands at least a foot taller than Alan, wearing the robe that probably used to belong to him. Unlike Alan, Herb has an actual medical doctorate and works as a pediatrician. Since Herb is Jake's doctor, Alan now gets to ruminate on the thought that Herb and Judith shared a mutual attraction for years. Perhaps she even fantasized about Herb while sharing a bed with Alan. Judith appears wearing a matching white robe and wonders why Alan showed up unannounced. After she fails to recognize the giraffe, she tells Alan, you're a disturbed man, you need help, and shuts the door in his face. Thus, Judith never appreciated Alan's gestures of affection. Alan's entire identity as a man revolves around Judith and Jake as a family unit, so losing that tender feeling nullifies his remaining manliness. At Pavlov's, Alan breaks the giraffe's neck off as he says, My ex-wife is sleeping with our pediatrician. Charlie takes the head and stirs his drink. In the episode's last scene, Charlie glues the giraffe back together as Alan writes another check. Despite Alan's attempt to dip his toe into Charlie's lifestyle as an alcoholic, he retains the same status quo mentality. Charlie wants to protect his brother, but he never protects Alan from himself. His approach allows Alan to make mistakes and learn from them. In this instant instance, Alan knows he held onto the giraffe not as a last effort to retain his masculinity, but keep a sweet memory from his marriage. Rather than ponder how to reinvent himself, Alan repeats what he already knew. Judith hates him, and the marriage failed. Now Judith is moving on. Charlie offers one consolation. If she marries him, you're off the hook for alimony. This guy's a real catch for you. The alimony and child support Alan pays remind him of his defeat, and he works every day to lose the money to someone who does not love him. Judith eventually marrying Herb not only provides Alan relief, but Jake now has a consistent, responsible role model in his life. The funny thing about Herb is I think they actually get divorced later on. I can't remember, uh, but Herb ends up cheating on Judith, I think a couple of times. I mean, he's taken in by Charlie's lifestyle, I think even before he and Judith get married. And once they are married, Herb seems miserable quite often. And I don't know that you can blame Judith for that. I think that you can blame the honeymoon phase of a relationship dying for that. And it happens to a lot of people. I mean, all everyone's honeymoon phase ends. I mean, there's the, the portion of a relationship, at least contemporary relationships, where you're first together... You have a lot of sex. You seem happy with each other. That can last a, a couple of years, maybe more. But the thing is, is that Herb isn't a bad man per se, but he's much like Alan in that he tried to keep his head above water for most of his life. And now he's looking at what Charlie's been able to do in Charlie's not keeping his head above water, he's turning backflips in the water, and he he wants to emulate Charlie. Charlie is the wild man. So, yeah, I mean, a lot of men see Charlie's lifestyle, and they think, oh, man, that's so much better than what I'm going through. What they don't see 
is the alcoholism, the lack of commitment, the the thought, the ever present thought that you're going to die alone. Those things are are very harsh realities for Charlie. Anyway, Evelyn awaits a hungover Charlie while sipping on coffee in his kitchen as she plots a mental assault, which displays not only their current toxic relationship, but also how she raised her son. At no point does Charlie invite her over, yet her intent soon presents as an ambush. Evelyn says, Well, Charlie, you're finally up. Where's my grandson? No one calls me? I wouldn't have to come over if I if I'd been told he wasn't here. And where's your brother? His car's not in the driveway. Rather than take interest in her son's well-being, Evelyn acts as if Charlie inconveniences her. She knows he abuses alcohol, cannot remain in a committed relationship, and has a stalker, yet Evelyn shows no concern. Her passive-aggressive remark about only visiting Charlie's house to see Jake does not faze him. Rather than succumbing to Evelyn's mind games like Alan, Charlie pours his coffee in his underwear as if his mother is not eye-level with his penis trying to shame him. Despite acting as if inviting herself into Charlie's home ruins her day, Evelyn invades her son's space and decides they will spend the day together. Rather than tell his mother to leave, Charlie acquiesces, intending to ignore her. Unlike Alan, who possesses a confrontational spirit, Charlie likes to ignore his problems until they go away. As Charlie and Evelyn watch 10,000 BC, starring Raquel Welch, she interrupts the movie. You know, I'm not going to be around forever, and this time will come, and the time will come when you'll regret ignoring me. On comedic cue, Charlie stresses her as he looks at the TV. Evelyn obviously did not walk into Charlie's house that morning intending to see Jake or Alan. She wants to confront Charlie. While Alan remains polite and accommodating to Evelyn, Charlie lives as if he does not have a mother. Even when Charlie enters a serious relationship with Mia or Chelsea later in the series, he does not willingly introduce them to Evelyn. I want to piggyback on what Evelyn just did there. My grandmother did the same fucking thing a couple of years ago. So I stopped talking to my grandmother in 2017. Yeah, I have not seen or spoken to her since June of 2017. And I I, I don't know, a year or two later, my family had a, a family portrait made. I was a part of one that took place in about 2011 that is a story all unto itself. And to make things a bit more bitter, my cousin Isaac was not present uh, because he died in 2015. And so there was, already, there was already kind of a hole there, if you ask me, the fact that we'd, we'd done this back in 2011 and she was expecting everyone to come back and do it uh, not even a decade later. Uh, and the family had not grown. The family had actually lost someone. So I had no interest in, in participating in this drudgery. And so my grandmother says to my mother, you know, I don't know if I'm going to be around for the next one. Um, my grandmother is now 79. Uh, she'll be 80 next year, I think. 
She was born in 43, and the only reason I remember that is because she has the same birth year as Richard Thompson. Richard Thompson, if you're not familiar, is one of the best guitar player, guitar players and singer-songwriters to ever exist. Go listen to him. But, yeah, I, I, I've had a very bad, like, toxic relationship with her. Uh, she's I've, I've already covered that on the podcast, but... Uh, to pull that to say, you know, I'm not, I don't know when I'm going to to be here, if I'm going to be here that much longer, all that shit. That that does not give you justification to treat people around you like shit. Let's get back into two and a half men. The episode provides the first emotional outburst. Charlie aims at Evelyn when he reveals why he avoids her. While Charlie never pretends to love Evelyn in the first season, he displays a malice that brews inside him for decades. Evelyn asks, Charlie, why do you hate me? Whenever I come over, you do everything to avoid spending time with me. This conversation remains one-sided even as Berta and Rose later join the scene. If Evelyn wants to understand her feelings as a mother, she should reflect on her life and how she raised her sons. Instead, she assumes she never wronged them and Charlie's avoidance is a childish gesture. The episode builds to Charlie's verbal explosion as Evelyn builds her case against him. Berta walks into the kitchen to tell Charlie she is leaving for the day, and Charlie begs her to stay to deflect Evelyn. This backfires as Berta tells Evelyn about her daughter getting arrested at her home on Mother's Day. Despite the story about Berta's daughter building a pot farm in her shed, Evelyn only cares about her daughter visiting her on the holiday. Whenever Charlie disappoints Evelyn, she holds his mistake over his head. That Mother's Day, Charlie was probably drunk in bed with a nameless woman or in Las Vegas, the activities he indulges in as avoidance. Charlie wants to forget he has a mother amongst other adult responsibilities and relationships, so acknowledging that holiday only hinders him with obligation. However, one day possesses more importance, Evelyn's birthday. When Evelyn Point Blake asks, what's my birthday, Charlie falls for her trap. What has that got to do with anything? When Berta chides him about not knowing, he says, What? She changes it all the time. The only consistency Evelyn maintains is her inconsistency. Before the series begins, Charlie rarely sees Evelyn or Alan. He spends his late 20s and early 30s partying every day, while occasionally writing a commercial jingle. Evelyn showing up uninvited starting a fight not only displays the oblivious nature of her relationship with Charlie, but this act remains true to her character. Blindsiding Charlie gives Evelyn a rush of superiority. A woman in her late 50s with a full-time job, mentally terrorizing her already traumatized son, demonstrates Evelyn's erratic persona. Charlie exclaims, Hey, I just realized something. I can leave. But she will not relent. Evelyn Allen never walks away from Evelyn, but avoidance encapsulates Charlie. While Charlie Harper is not a good person, Lori designs Charlie as the bad man who other men envy because they are more like Allen than they admit. However, the results possess origins in Evelyn's neglect and abuse. The informal trial of Charlie continues when Berta blurts out, Was he breastfed? Evelyn's response perpetuates her casual neglect. Of course he was. Not by me personally. 
Charlie and Alan's trauma begin before they gained object permanence. Rather than by formula, Evelyn paid a woman to breastfeed her children, which demonstrates a total disconnect in her motherhood. Berta adds, he does tend to favor the big yams. So the psychology major, Rose, chimes in. The one night we were together, he did spend a freakish amount of time on my boobies. It was like making love to a cat. The conversation transforms into a psychoanalysis on Charlie, and he no longer feels safe in his home. Even in his adulthood, Evelyn takes pleasure in emasculating her son. This scene offers a peek at tactics Evelyn devised in Charlie's childhood, and probably against Frank Harper. His growing discomfort only chides Evelyn on. He's always had neural fixation. When he was little, he used to suck on other children's thumbs. Berta points out that now he's always got a bottle of booze in his mouth. This psychological assault via humiliation showcases why Charlie hides in Corona bottles and uses women like tissues. If the women in his life think so little of him and demean Charlie like a child, then his reaction follows a logical conclusion no matter the moral conflict. Charlie's masculinity is a shield he built to protect himself from vulnerability with women and his fear of failure. But Evelyn penetrates his insecurity so easily because she is the original source of his trauma. Jake makes his one appearance in the episode and Charlie hopes his arrival changes Evelyn's trajectory. Instead, Evelyn dismisses Jake and Charlie finally snaps. As his face turns red and voice turns to gravel, Charlie provides clear reasoning on why he despises Evelyn. Before I read this, I want to drink a little Coke. Mmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, fine. Here it is. I'm not saying I hate you, but if it did have something to do with the fact that you're a narcissistic bloodsucker who drove my father into an early grave. Even when confronting Evelyn... Charlie does not directly state he hates her. He calls her a bloodsucker and accuses her of driving Frank to get food poisoning, but he cannot admit the pent-up anger that brews inside him amounts to hate. He continues, After you married a succession of men who couldn't care less about Alan and me, you looked at us like a couple of dancing monkeys you could just haul out whenever it suited you. While the series alludes to Evelyn marrying multiple men, Charlie and Allie and Alan rarely acknowledge their previous stepfathers. Losing their father and experiencing their mother attempt to replace him multiple times jades the Harper brothers. Instability, even for a rich family, creates a mental schism that tears their relationship apart. While Alan breaks down because he loses his wife, Charlie avoids potential relationships because he fears their demise. In conclusion, Charlie says... Now you show up here every chance you get to lay a guilt trip on me for not appreciating my cold, loveless childhood. Evelyn initially looks affected before the punchline. Well, obviously you're not ready to talk about it. Finally, Charlie lets his anger out and Evelyn's denial rejects his entire statement. Once again, he reaches no point of closure or vindication. After causing her son to detonate, Evelyn leaves as if she split as if she spilt wine in a restaurant and decided and declined to clean her mess. I am skipping ahead to chapter two of the thesis, which covers season three through four. I don't know how much I can cover 
in this episode. I'm not going to be able to read the whole fucking thing, I can tell you that. However, if we're going to be leaning into this two and a half men thing on the podcast, we need to cover season three for sure. I'll probably skip the next chapter if I keep going so that I can get to the final chapter and talk about season eight. I I don't know that I can cover season eight in an entire episode. I mean, for fuck's sake, it's taken me this long to get through the first couple of seasons. And I barely scratched the surface with those. Anyway, season three focuses more on the Harper brothers' romantic pursuits as Alan and Judith briefly reconcile, his second wife Candy appears, and Charlie abandons his promiscuous endeavors to win over a dance instructor named Mia. The latter two women appear and various characters reference them throughout the series, so Candy and Mia leave a lasting impression the writers never let the Harpers forget. Lee Aronson and Don Foster revisit Judith's previous characterizations in Carpet Burns and a Bite Mark, as Alan maintains a secret relationship with his ex-wife. Charlie discovers the renewed romance and refers to her as insufferable and inane and insane, which co- coincides with Judith during the separation and legal proceedings Alan endures during the first two seasons. Alan admits we went out to dinner to talk about getting Jake into a good middle school and before you know it we were laughing and having a great time. You can't overlook that we still have a lot in common. At this point in the series the writers consistently portray Judith as harsh and unloving. For two seasons the audience dislikes her character as they root for Alan. This episode provides insight as to why she left Alan and how he has not changed since their marriage while she makes progress outside of their relationship. Charlie's dismissal of Alan rekindling their their union echoes the audience's sentiment. Realistically, Judith maintains a stable environment for Jake, never keeps her son from his father, and voices her criticism when Charlie and Alan act as a bad influence. Of course, she rakes Alan over the coals in the divorce and recommends her own attorney to Candy, Alan's second wife, as a vindictive gesture. Her attitude regarding her future husband, Herb, provides a poor example of how women should conduct themselves, which Jake notices and internalizes. Lori and Aronson craft Judith as a flawed person, and every character on the show shares a similarity. I continue to <laughs> defend Judith through a lot of this thesis. Which, by the way, she's not in much of the last four seasons. I think that's interesting. Everyone who cares about Alan's well-being also happened to dislike Judith as she arguably keeps his mother, brother, and friends at a distance. Preying on his insecurities with women and lack of a backbone, the two-and-a-half men trifecta greets Alan as he enters the kitchen, Evelyn, Rose, and Berta. Their stern expressions cause him to turn around, but a surprisingly sober Charlie appears to stop him. Evelyn starts, We're all here because we love you. Rose chimes in, and we don't want to see you make a terrible mistake. Charlie explains, you wouldn't listen to reason, so now you're going to listen to mom. By the way, Judith, uh, not Judith, Berta leaves after her uh, Pop-Tarts pop out of the, the toaster. Unlike Evelyn's ambush, when Charlie reveal, finally reveals why he hates her, this intervention presents a unified front. Everyone in the room knows how Judith treats Alan during and following the divorce, and Judith dislikes all of them. 
As usual, Berta provides the comic relief, but she gawks with the others when Judith appears later. Evelyn says, I could have sucked up to Judith in order to have more access to my grandson, but no, I burned that bridge. I said horrible things to her that I can never take back, which prompts Charlie. And keep in mind, this is a woman who worked mousy bitch in her wedding toast. Judith and Evelyn never reach an understanding or a mutually beneficial relationship. The, the wedding toast comment reveals an adversarial dynamic that lasts Alan's 12-year marriage. 12 years? Jesus Christ. It, I commented in a couple of episodes ago that I didn't feel like their, their relationship was really that long, um, especially because you know Jake is only 8 years old when the, the show starts, but maybe I'm wrong. Thus, Evelyn does not care that Alan wants to try again with Judith so much as keep her former daughter-in-law at a distance. The doorbell rings, so Alan runs from the kitchen to greet Judith. When she sees Jake in his pajamas, she starts lecturing Alan until their son walks out of the room. Her body language and tone completely change. I was thinking about you last night. The transition in demeanor depicts Judith as quite an actress and calls into question her previous characterization. Prior to the divorce, they loved each other at some point and Judith ignored the, those feelings as she pursued her own interest in other men. If she allowed her affections to blind her, Judith would still be miserable with Alan in spite of their love. Later in the episode, Alan joins Judith in the, her hot tub and reveals his obnoxious passive aggression that affected their marriage. Despite that they are practically nude together and sharing an intimate moment, he says, I like the new patio furniture. That must have set me back a few bucks. Alimony prevents Alan from leaving Charlie's house, and Judith's life only prospers. Despite that Jake spends weekdays at school and weekends with Alan, Judith never gets a job. Oh, God. Don't get me started. Alan... Okay, I will get started because I talked about this with Skylar White in the first episode of this where I was comparing the two. And the thing about Skylar is that in the first episode of Breaking Bad, she's depicted as being this aspiring writer and she's making a living through eBay sales while Walter's working as a teacher, not really making much money. They're having a hard enough time making ends meet, and then he gets cancer. And that's a, a huge part of the reason why he starts making meth. It's not just a toxic masculinity thing or him feeling like he's never been able to be a real man before. Not just that. That's part of it, for sure. But he definitely does it for the money. The money's not the only reason, but it's part of the reason. And people have joked that if America had a better healthcare system, it would have never have even crossed his mind. Maybe it would have in a different light. But Skylar shows shows later in the series that she actually had a, a nice job before that was lucrative. Uh, she may have actually made more than Walt. And she stepped away from that to help raise her family. There's nothing wrong with that. But... At the same time, they were struggling, and it was it, she could have worked. And Judith, this is a critique of, of her from, from me that I, I don't know where I'm really supposed to stand. I, I, I don't. 
Um, I come from a family of working women, but I, I don't think there's anything wrong with, with women or men uh, if one of the spouses has a, a sizable income that can support both of you. If you want to stay home and the other partner's fine with that, fine. But Judith is raising a son and she no longer has a husband. So she doesn't have any kind of income except for alimony. Now, you might argue her lifestyle was the same before the divorce. And I can definitely see that. And you might, you know, want to talk about her mental well-being. She's dealing with a lot because of the divorce. I agree with that. I do wonder, um, you know, someone should have should have encouraged her. Maybe she didn't have skills. Maybe, maybe, you know, the only thing that she could have done was something that she felt was beneath her. I don't know that there's not, we're never really given Judith's point of view, which isn't quite fair. Anyway, Alan continues. We've been separated for two years. I haven't seen you naked for four. Rather than look inward and decipher why their marriage lost intimacy, Alan blames Judith. Two years without sex in a marriage certainly indicates a greater problem, yet Alan assumes Judith lost interest in him rather than investigating the reasoning. After having sex, Alan remarks, that was the best sex we've ever had. Not that it wasn't good before, to which Judith responds, it wasn't. Unlike Alan, Judith faces little issue finding partners after the divorce. Her response not only highlights those new experiences, but also reflection on her sexual relationship with Alan. They dated in high school and married young, so neither experienced multiple sexual partners until their 30s. Alan asks, why is it so much better? And Judith aptly retorts, does it matter? Unlike Charlie, Alan cannot live in the moment and enjoy momentary pleasures. He investigates the smallest details and never learns when that backfires. Rather than stop talking when Judith asks a rhetorical question, he slut-shames her. I've been with other women. I just haven't learned anything. You, on the other hand, have an entirely new sexual repertoire. This statement does not give Alan pause to reflect on himself. He accepts his mediocre basic sexuality while Judith took time to explore herself. Rather than embracing Judith's advantageous side, he ridicules her. Alan continues, I was very happy, but then I started to think about it. There's no reason you couldn't have changed with me. While he raises a valid point about their relationship, Alan fails to see that he is the anchor weighing Judith down. He squanders a new opportunity to reform his prized family unit using the same logic that prompted Judith to leave him. I guess in the next episode I'm going to cover the voodoo that I do because I've frankly run out of steam and audacity just pissed me off because my last recording was 26 minutes long and it was pulling the bullshit. You can't export something that's over 4 gigabytes. Fuck you, audacity. Uh, listen, I'm not going to shell out the money for something else right now and I tried Reaper and I didn't like it for podcasting. I don't recommend it for podcasting. I think that Audacity is superior in many ways. However, 
when it comes to functionality outside of recording, it's fucking obnoxious as shit. So there's that. It's it, it even things that I recorded in, in Reaper, I ended up mastering in Audacity just because I know how to use it better. And I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to learn something new right now. I don't, I just don't. Okay. Uh, anyway. I'm fucking tired of talking to you right now. You haven't done anything for me lately. Did you buy my new book? No, you didn't. Did you tell me how much you liked my other books? No, you didn't. What did you do? You kept listening to my podcast for free. You didn't even stream my music. So, if you would like to make me happy and stream the podcast for free, because I don't have a Patreon... I don't have anything that requires you to pay for this. I don't have advertisements. I'm not making anything from this. This is not a quote-unquote professional podcast. So, if you would like to support the podcast, go fucking buy my books on Kindle or paperback or however you prefer to read books. If you like to roll them up and shove them up your ass, go for it. I don't care. If you would like to support it in a different way, you can go find my music under the name Lurking Vowel, okay? Thank you. Bye.